This is an ABC podcast. We humans have between six and eight basic emotions. I say between six and eight because there's a few different views on this. It depends on whose theory you're following. But essentially, these emotions are disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, surprise, and anger. And those all have adaptive properties in terms of helping people survive and gain access to reproductive resources and and reproduce. So if you think about fear, for instance, you know, you see a snake, it elicits fear, you run away, you live to, you know, go walk in the woods another day. Mm -hmm. Disgust, for instance, you see something that's potentially infectious, that elicits disgust, and you don't touch it, so you don't die. (laughs) But today we're focusing on anger. And anger is useful in many ways because it can get us what we want. For instance, like if if you get angry, people will back down, right? If you think about two animals like fighting over some food, the one who becomes aggressive is going to win and they'll eat and possibly have greater reproductive success and so on. On a bigger stage, it can lead to change. Collective action, for instance, is a good case of that. But we also know anger can be deeply destructive. I exploded in such a way that I landed up smashing um, the family car with a steel pipe. Everyone that was there at the time was absolutely terrified. And still today, I can remember seeing the look of two children absolutely frightened. And when I focused on who they were, they were my kids Mm -hmm. and they were absolutely scared. And that's what stopped me dead in my tracks. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. So what shapes a person's propensity for anger? Is it different among men and women? And do anger management programs and strategies really work? So we will get men that are just doing it to tick the boxes. Those guys don't change. They don't change. We're going to look at both our everyday, lower-level experiences of anger, as well as when it crosses into more aggressive behaviour. So today... Seeing red. What happens when we let our most destructive emotion dominate? Let's start at the very beginning. How early in life do we feel anger? So the jury is out, really, in terms of how early infants feel anger. And part of the reason the jury is out is because it's very difficult to measure an infant in terms of what emotion they're expressing. This is Caroline Moore. She's a senior lecturer and researcher at the University of Sydney's School of Psychology. So we think that infants as young as around three months of age, they appear to express anger. Um, But the question really is whether they're just expressing a kind of general negative state, a kind of frustration or discomfort or confusion. It's very difficult to make experiments that reliably induce anger in, in a child that young. That's interesting because I think anyone who's been near a baby will have heard a baby scream and cry, and and sometimes it sounds like a very angry cry. So how is that not (laughs) anger? How are we still uncertain about that? Because it sounds like anger. It does does sound like anger, but we also have to remember that we are viewing the world through an adult lens. Mm. So we're viewing it through adult cognition, um, adult understanding of the way the world works. An infant doesn't have that. So it might be that to us, you know, it fits into the anger category. And it would, you know, if we did the same behaviors, we'd categorize it as anger. But in the same ways that the same situation may provoke anger in one adult and not in another. And the same is true of infants. And yet their their range of kind of expression is so much less. Without language, they can only express dissatisfaction, really. 
Babies become toddlers, of course. And if you've ever come between a toddler and the thing they want, or rearranged their food the wrong way, or simply existed near them, you know their anger can be explosive. This is my toddler, losing it because I won't let him in the kitchen, because the oven is on. Toddlers are the most aggressive a human being will ever be in their life. So if if toddlers <laughs> did were, were full grown human beings and smashing on each other like like <laughs> um, it, it, no, but seriously, they do engage in the in the most like frequent acts of aggression wow. um, at any developmental period, and that's yeah because their brains are still developing and they can't regulate their emotions. They're experiencing all of these emotions. They're at that age where they know they want something, for instance, but they can't have it, and, and that's upsetting, and they can't regulate that. This is Dr. Tom Denson. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of New South Wales, and his research focuses on anger and aggression. What's missing in the brain for toddlers that makes them this capable of flying off the handle? Yeah, so the regulation of, of negative emotions is very much an interplay of these very like primitive structures that, that are involved in emotion, like the amygdala most people have heard of, and that prefrontal cortex, which is involved in controlling not only behavior, but also emotions and so on. And that prefrontal cortex development takes a very long time, so it's not complete until the you know early 20s. Mm. Uh, so that, that's why they're missing those connections and the amount of gray matter and so on that is needed to help regulate anger and other negative emotions. Let's fast forward here. And as we get older, our triggers for anger become more complex. Anger is elicited when in human beings when we feel that we have been unjustly harmed. So as you can imagine, that's a wide range of triggers, right? So for instance, just a simple example, if someone bumps into you and you don't perceive them as, you know, out to get you, um, it was just an accident, mm-hmm. then you don't, you don't experience anger. Um, right. But if, if someone does bump into you and they have a mean look on their face and you think, hey, this guy's you know, out to get me, then you experience anger. And anger is problematic because it can lead to aggression. So we need to differentiate between anger and aggression. Hmm. Uh, so anger is the emotion, and we all have that emotion. We experience it very frequently, depending on who you talk to. It's, people get angry anytime from like a couple of times a week to a couple of times a day. Hmm. So it's a very common emotion. Which means we're actually very good at regulating it in terms of not becoming aggressive and not actually hurting people. What else do we know about the general nature of anger in terms of, is there an average amount of time the feeling lasts? Yeah, so back in the 70s and 80s, they did some really interesting experiments where they just brought people in the lab, made them angry, Mm -hmm. and then just saw how long it would last. (laughs) Um, And and then most people get over it in about 10 to 15 minutes. And and that's by just like self-report saying, are you still angry? And also by blood pressure. So the blood pressure goes down also in about 10 to 15 minutes. So most people, like I said, are pretty good at sort of getting over it. How would they make them angry? Um, so, well, so we do lots of these experiments as well. So we essentially, we induce that sense of being unjustly harmed. So we might have them come in and do a task and then insult them on their performance on the task and tell them, you know, this is the worst <laughs> task I've ever seen. And, you know, of any university student ever, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, they're, and they're just like here to volunteer or getting some course credit to do an experiment. And they're like, why is this guy treating me like this? You know, I didn't deserve this. And that tends to make people angry. Has that ever gone really wrong where a participant just gets really angry about it and doesn't sort of calm down? Like, has that ever landed you in, in trouble with any um, participants? No, no, not yet. I mean, we, we have, we've have had a couple, but um, that have gotten a little bit more upset than usual. And in that case, we just explain things, stop the experiment and everything's fine. Yeah. Uh, it's usually just you catch someone on the, on the wrong day, but it's really rare. It's happened like 
once or twice out of thousands of participants. Right, right. And so why is there such disproportionate responses to, you know, the same stimuli among people? Why will some people fly off the handle while others might not? Yeah, that's a good question. I think people are still looking into that. There are like various individual differences that are associated with greater responses, uh, more anger in terms of, of responses to provocation. And it's a laundry list of things, you know, it's uh, things like narcissism. So some people just, we don't know why, but they tend to respond more aggressively. It's just people tend to be more irritable. It's men, a lot of a lot of uh, different uh, things. Is it possible to say in terms of what factors play the, the greatest role in who might struggle with anger, whether it's personality differences versus genetics or hormones or, you know, is it possible to tease out what plays the greatest role? Yeah. So genetics are 50% of the story actually, mm. which is high. <laughs> it's probably, well, it is one of the highest genetic wow. um, genetic contributions to specific traits. Intelligence, for instance, uh, meta-analysis shows about 48% oh, yeah. genetic. So we do get a lot of our anger from our parents. And then that's also a problem because within those homes, you know, we've got the genetic predisposition, you know, and then you've also got, you know, angry parents and that creates more anger and so on. And, and, and there could be abuse involved, intimate partner violence, observing a parent, you know, being a victim of intimate partner violence is a, is a big thing, childhood abuse. So all of these things sort of, they're hard to tease apart. It's mm. also kind of like just a mess, right? It's kind of like a perfect storm. So it's hard to really solve this problem. Trying to solve this problem, or at least minimise it, is something David Nugent has dedicated his life to. And he knows all about the perfect storm Professor Denson is talking about. David is the founder of the Heavy Metal Men's Program. The metal is an acronym for men's education towards anger and life. But if you rewind a few decades, David was on a very different path. Can you take me back to 25, 30 years ago when you were a younger bloke? How would you have described yourself at the time? Um, 25, 30 years ago, before I got into this work, I was a hardworking guy, honest. I had ambitions of being the best father I could be and the best partner I could be. And I was motivated to try and be successful in all parts of my life. What was going on below the surface for you? Were you angry? I... um never sort of thought I was an angry kind of guy that would get into fights or the kind of guy that would go to pubs and, and get into blues or parties. But what I found was that as I went through life, when things were challenging or things weren't going the way I, I kind of expected them to go, I would then get frustrated. And, and then I found myself kind of bottling things up and then it would build up to a point where then I would lose it to the point I might slam something or mm. you know slam a cupboard door or you know get to a point where I've just like um this is it I've had enough and then storm out mm. slamming the door and jumping in the car and, and taking off for a few hours. Can you tell me about the incident that was a turning point in your life? Yes the incident the thing that I noticed as I reflect on my journey, like a lot of us men, I was very good at wearing a mask. But this one particular time, I dropped the mask and I was at a family event. At the time, David was arguing with his partner about the car. So I went to the family party to get my car and my partner didn't want to give me the car keys. And 
there was a whole lot of monkey chatter running through my head, kind of almost feeding me to claim some sort of justification that no one's going to tell me no. Hmm. And I exploded in such a way that I, I hadn't exploded before when I landed up smashing the family car with a steel pipe. Wow. Everyone that was there at the time was absolutely terrified. And still today, I can remember seeing the look of two children absolutely frightened about what this guy was doing. And when I focused on who they were, they were my kids. Mm. And that's what stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just just froze and walked off. And that was the turning point when my partner at the time said, I can't do this anymore. And mm. um, that was the time that I said, okay, I put my hand up for help. And I went searching to find a way to make change. David went to counselling, and it was great. He found it really helpful. But when his counsellor suggested he could benefit from a men's anger program, he thought, no way, I'm not that bad. Because I was never physically violent towards my partner. But it definitely... The, the traits of emotional abuse, intimidation, financial control was another one that I I was the captain of. I, I also had the preconceived idea that you're either been in jail or you're a criminal. And, and look, the real reason when you pull back all those layers, the real core belief is that I was scared hmm. and I didn't know it or couldn't own that back then, but I know that's what was holding me back. And so you eventually did go to the men's group. What effect did that have and how is that different to um, whatever benefit you got out of counselling? The beauty about the men's program was that you soon realise that you're not alone. There was lots of men struggling with their behaviour and struggling with expressing their feelings or understanding or controlling their their anger. And that on Mm. its own was empowering and to hear other men that were further down the track in their journey of working on change was empowering to go wow he can do it I can do it that's not to say it was a straight shot to recovery and behavior change about a year after finishing the program David noticed his anger creeping back but the original course he'd joined was no longer running. So he found another program, but it wasn't very good. So he took himself back to his counsellor. Eventually, these experiences wouldn't just change his behaviour, they'd change his career. He retrained as a counsellor himself and has now worked in the men's anger space for more than 20 years. Well, heavy metal is basically initially it's around family violence and it's around men's behaviour change. I've had all walks of life come from my doors, from blue-collar workers to white-collar workers, from policemen to family lawyers to accountants to brickies to Mm. unemployed to people beating addiction to a whole range. You know, one of the oldest guys I've had in my program was 72. But generally at the end of the day, what brings the bloke to the group initially, similar to my story, something recently has happened. It's been the breaking point. 
And that's the sad part about it, that something bad has to happen for us blokes to wake up. And how many of them change significantly versus stay the same? Yeah, that's a common question. You know, Victoria has led the way with Melbourne University doing research on men's behaviour change programs. And they conducted this research over a period of five, six years. And the end results were that men that attended men's behaviour change programs and completed it, what they call successfully, was around 69%. I believe in my experience with working with men that men make great change initially. And this is where the research was doing their work was, okay, there's the initial part, but then what about further down? And this is where the the problem becomes is complacency sets in. So that's what drives heavy metal to have the longer program Mm. because I don't believe men can just change overnight over a 20-week program isn't long enough. Well, we've been operating on 40 weeks. If those men stick to that, the successes are a lot higher. Mm. But once again, there's always men that I call the guys that are collecting the elephant stamp. So they're just there Mm. to say that I've done this. And they're not taking it serious. And usually some of them are mandated by the court Mm. or their um, child protection is involved in the family and they're just doing it to tick the boxes. Those guys don't change. Right, right. They don't change. And I guess you can tell quite quickly who's who's there for that kind of thing, hey? I can tell within about three or four sessions of the program. My facilitators can pick up on it too. Is that frustrating? No, it's part of the job and it's challenging. And so, you know, some of my facilitators will get frustrated with it and go, you know, what's he here for? And this is another good point that, okay, just let's trust the process. Let's do what we do best and keep working with him, keep mm-hmm. challenging him. And so many times I will see men, maybe initially they're really difficult and then my team will say to me in a debrief meeting after group, they'll say, oh, wasn't so-and-so amazing tonight. Never heard him so <laughs> take so much ownership and he was so transparent. And I just sit there with a big grin on my face because <laughs> I'm like, it's just sometimes some are slower than others. And so we can pick up on them, but then, you know, we can also be wrong. So, yeah, I remind myself of that all the time. The thing is, David's own behaviour change is all the more remarkable given his upbringing. My father was extremely abusive um, towards my mother. And yeah, it was a horrible upbringing. And I just think the irony of it is as much as I despise my father for the way he treated my mother and the fact that I said to myself, I'll never be like my father. In fact, I turned out like him. The only difference was I wasn't physically violent. Mm. And, And how are your relationships with your own family now compared to 25 years ago? Oh, amazing. Really proud of my adult children, particularly my son. I watch him like a hawk and he's just an amazing father. I watch him like a hawk thinking whether he's got any of his father's traits in him, Hmm. but I can't see any of it. I think in some ways the cycle's been broken um, because I was a mini-me of my father and I just think, how great is this that Hmm. my kids, uh, they don't live this This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. 
And there's been lots of research done on men's anger, less so on women's experience of anger. Professor Denson says that's despite the fact that, overall, women and men seem to report feeling angry with equal frequency. What we do know is women's anger is less likely to result in outright aggression. Aggression in women is very different than aggression in men. It's mostly a matter of degree, but also sort of qualitatively as well. So in terms of qualitatively, women tend to engage in more what's called indirect aggression. So spreading rumors, gossiping, and so on. Whereas men tend to engage in more, you know, direct confrontational aggression, verbal aggression, physical aggression, and so on. And women hardly ever engage in sexual aggression, whereas for men, it's much more common. What accounts for that sex difference? People, again, go back to evolution to explain this, and they think the idea is that women being smaller than men are more likely to engage in what are, you know, uh, safer, I put that in inverted commas, you know, Mm. safer aggressive behaviors, meaning it's a lower likelihood of detection. Mm. So they might spread a rumor, et cetera. Whereas a man will just come up, a man will come up to you and say, Hey, you know, I don't like you (laughs) and that sort of thing. And, and how much does testosterone play a role in how much men engage versus women in, in aggression? Yeah, not as much as you think. So mm. in animals, it's pretty clear, but it's it's actually not that clear at all in humans. So mm. the, the relationship between aggression and testosterone is very, very small. People have sort of thought about this quite a bit, actually. And, and they've come up with a better explanation, which is testosterone in humans is about dominant striving. So trying to make your place in the hierarchy. That's the goal as a human being. That's how you 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 have reproductive fitness, right? You become highest in the hierarchy. So to, to, to do that, you can behave aggressively. That's one way to do it. Uh, but there's also lots of other ways as a human being. You can form coalitions. You can be a nice person. You know, <laughs> there's, there's lots of different ways to sort of move up in the ranks. So what can you do if you struggle with anger, whether you're a man or a woman? And I'm talking here about the lower level, everyday kinds of anger, not when it crosses into abuse. Well, before we get to strategies that work, here's one that doesn't. One of the Freudian ideas with anger is catharsis, and that's the idea that if you if you're angry and you just act out or aggress against someone or shout at someone, then or 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 an inanimate object or or whatever, you'll feel better and your your anger will go away. And this is absolutely not true. So they've done experiments on this, and it's absolutely not true. In fact, people become more angry and more aggressive when they do that when they you know displace their anger or aggression on something else. So the smash rooms, you got, have you heard of the smash yes. rooms? Right? Yeah. So, so that's like, you know, you can't, it can't work. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I think people think it's fun because when they go in there, they're probably not angry anymore. You've got to like book in and stuff like that. Mm. It requires some foresight. It's not like just being at home and smashing the television. Well, that's right. going to make people more angry, right? Right. And so, yeah, why does letting it out not work? What's What's going on there? Because you just become more and more aroused. And if you're thinking about the key bit is the rumination. So when you're doing this kind of stuff, you're thinking about the person who's made you angry. And this was a a very nice experiment done almost 20 years ago now, where they actually provoked people in the lab, like I said earlier, where they give you a task and then they say, this is a really stupid task. And then they had people either punch a punching bag while thinking about becoming physically fit. So that's kind of like a distraction. Or punch the punching bag while you're thinking about this guy who just provoked you. Or just do nothing. And it was in that punching bag while you're ruminating, while you're thinking about this person condition, people became more angry and more aggressive than in the other groups. So that's just one study that's been replicated. Yeah. And so it's really that rumination component where you're just really like thinking about this person does harm me. You're really reliving it, rehashing it, thinking about revenge. 
that's what can uh, get you in trouble. And that's the opposite of catharsis, right? So it's not making you feel better at all. It's making you worse. All right. So if we do struggle with anger and aggression and rumination, what are things we can do to try and address that? That that would help. Yeah. So it, it's it's hard. And remember that it's going to be hard. So if you're prepared for this, that it's not going to be happen overnight. What we've had the most success with in the lab here is called cognitive reappraisal. And that's really simple to, when you think about the idea, it's just getting people to think about a provocation in a non-personal way, in a way that's self-distanced. If say you insulted me, I would try to think about that situation as if I was a third party observer. So someone maybe standing at the door, just watching or someone floating above. So almost like a dissociation kind of thing. And that is actually strangely powerful in terms of reducing anger when you start to get outside of yourself, because anger really focuses your attention on yourself and how you're feeling and mm. what you want. And if you can get outside of that, then yeah, that, that can be really helpful. If you listen to our episode on chatter a few weeks ago, you might recognize the strategy. The other thing that's um, shown some, we've, we've got sort of mixed results in our lab, but other labs I know have, have had some pretty good results with mindfulness. So getting people to meditate and that that helps people it doesn't stop the anger again it just helps them you know be aware of it recognize it and so on and then they don't have to act on it something that i found really helpful early in in my journey of change was to recognize those signals that i was in a build up period i'd stand taller i'd be standing more defensive but then my voice would change the tone of my voice would change i, I might become louder so these are all physical signs that flag that I'm moving into that place of anger. But then just I got to a point of managing it so well that I was able to just kind of grab it and go, hey, you know, where's this coming from? And that sort of really slowed the process of, you know, the reaction that I used to have before I learned some of these things. The thing is, anger can actually feel good. Of course, in the long run, it causes all kinds of problems, from increased risk of cardiovascular disease to damaged relationships. But at times, it can also feel good. Yeah, it, because it, it activates brain regions responsible for you know what we call the reward system in the brain, so dopamine release and so on. And it does, it makes people feel good. And it's it's if you think about it, if we didn't have that, that good feeling propelling us towards violence, we would never become aggressive, right? Our ancestors who were aggressive wouldn't have had so much, you know, reproductive success, right? Because they would have just, you know, if anger always felt, you know, scary or bad, right? They, they just wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So they need that sort of appetitive function of that reward activation saying, okay, go for it, you know, mm. forget about your own safety. Like, don't worry about that. Just go for it. That seems kind of scary because if it feels good, can we ever really fully as a society, you know, get a handle on our anger and aggression and actually... Do we want to fully get rid of anger entirely? Yeah, so yeah, so that's that's exactly the point. I think no, the answer is no, we don't want to entirely get rid of it because we do want things like, you know, collective action for instance is a good is a good case of that. One one group that is being, you know, disadvantaged if they actually show some anger. And this is a very tricky thing how people do this, but it can be effective in and getting what they want in terms of getting, you know, more freedom or more equal rights and so on. That can be helpful. And that's why anger feels good sometimes as well. It's like you're, you're doing something, you're, you're mm. you know, you're finally, you know, taking down the, the man, that sort of thing. Or you have an awful boss who's a tyrant. Anger can be helpful in those situations and getting you motivated to maybe do something, do something else. But it's, if you go and just attack your boss, for instance, mm. that's probably not going to help, but it, it can get you motivated to maybe go look for another job or 
whatever. So we don't want to entirely get rid of it. Um, we would essentially just be zombies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we do need to control it and use it appropriately. And I think that's the tricky bit. And, and I think as a society, we're still evolving in that sense. That's Professor Tom Denson from UNSW. And before him, you heard from David Nugent, founder of the heavy metal men's group. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Jen Parsonage. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Trombley-Birchall. And we're here to remind you that The Pop Test, that comedy science quiz show from Radio National, is back. Each week we pick a science topic and ask comedians and scientists important questions like... Why might you stir your tea at 28,000 RPM? Where on earth does time travel the slowest? And what's so suspicious about being left-handed? With guests Sean McAuliffe, Claire Hooper, Cal Wilson, Dr Alan Duffy and Sammy Shah. The Pop Test. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or almost anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>